Software Engineering Radio, episode 120, OCL. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for support. So, Annika, welcome to our show. Um, Thank you. As is customary, uh, please introduce yourself to our audience. Yes. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Annika Klepper. Uh, I've been involved in the UML 1.1. That was actually the first version to be uh, um, specified as a standard. And I've been also involved in the development of the object constraint language, also known as OCL. And I've also did some work on MDA, model driven architecture. And currently, my focus is on domain-specific languages. Okay, clear. Well, you mentioned OCL already. Um, could you tell us a bit more about your whole involvement with OCL? How did this, this thing get started? Yeah, well, I've, I've been working with object-oriented modeling from the early 90s. And I was very familiar with the, what is now called the class diagram. Yeah. And, well, it seemed to be that you couldn't express any, everything that you wanted and needed to express about an application in that class diagram. And now I'm not talking about dynamics, things you put in activity diagrams or state diagrams, but more the static things that you'd like to add to class diagrams, which are also very important, like the age of a person may not be less than zero. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. important stuff. Yeah. When you stuff. talk to database administrators, they always know what you are talking about. Yes. Um, so we decided to find a way to add a way to class diagrams to specify these types of what we are call then called constraints. So it's actually really something that is restricting the class diagram uh, so that you have few instances which are actually valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what what were your influences in creating OCL? I mean, did you start from scratch? Were there already existing stuff that you got um, inspired by? Yeah. We, of course, we were inspired by what was uh, previously available. Um, we were inspired first by the work in the programming language Eiffel. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. uh, with the pre and post conditions yes. and invariance. Uh, we were also inspired by um, the programming language Smalltalk mm -hmm. in the way that you can uh, build expressions. Yeah. And we were also inspired by the work that was already done in IBM at that moment on uh, business process modeling, business mm -hmm. modeling. And um, in IBM at the time, People thought it was very important that business people should be able to express these types of constraints um, in the way that they really meant them, in, mm -hmm. in the language yeah. that these be business people use. Yeah. And from these 
three starting points on mm -hmm. we and of course the UML class diagram. Yeah. Uh, we created uh, a language, and of course all all type of background stuff uh, like uh, uh, set theory from mathematics yeah, sure. and mm -hmm. things like that. Actually, everything we had in our package. Uh, we took into account yeah. in, in building the OCL. Yeah. And I keep referring to we because I did not do that I, alone, but I mm -hmm. did that with my colleague, Jos Warmer, of course. Yes, yeah. You, you mentioned the IBM initiative that was targeted at enabling business people to come up with the constraints. Was this a, a, a target for you as well when you started out together with Jos uh, working on OCL? Um, no, not really. Um, this has been a dream in, in IT for so many years, yes. for 40 years or so, to have the business people express what the yeah. application should do. Yeah. And I, d I really don't believe in that. We will never be there. Uh, but we do need simpler ways mm -hmm. to express these type of things because the business people require... Uh, more and more complex things to be expressed. Yeah. You know, in, in the in the 60s, when people started to think about, well, business people should write programs, yeah. then the programs were so simple yeah. that indeed, if you had a mathematical background, you could write programs. Yeah. But now the demands on IT are, are much higher. Mm -hmm. And we need to express more complex things. So the IT people need new languages to express the, the, the business stuff yeah. uh, in a better and more eff efficient way. Yeah. yeah, I guess this subject will pop up later when we talk about your current activities. Absolutely. Um, you, you, you mentioned Eiffel and, and Smalltalk as an inspiration, but OCL ended up looking differently from those languages, no? Yes. I, I, because yeah. is, is, is there a, a reason behind that? Bec you know, the reason why I'm, I'm asking this, because um, um, I think that generally, and I'm not hoping I'm, I'm treading on any toes here, but people tend to find OCL difficult, more difficult than they probably tend to take uh, Eiffel or Smalltalk, for instance. Is that due to the, to the uh, influence of the set theory that you mentioned earlier, that you infuse that on the language? Yes, it, it probably is. Um, the ideas we took from Smalltalk was that you can put one expression after the other using a dot notation. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you can build a very, very large expression. Yeah. And it every expression uh, needs to have a resulting value yeah. to be able to do that. Yeah. And when you combine that with uh, things from set theory, like take the subset of this set, uh, but leave out uh, half of the members based on some expression, yeah. uh, then you really get this complex, well, what people find complex uh, notation nowadays. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's not a very complex one. If you really look at it, it's, it's actually very similar to SQL, only SQL yes. is more, um, you have to write more. Yeah. When you write SQL, yeah, and OCL is a very condensed yeah. language. SQL is more of a narrative language. It is like you're writing a story more or less. Yes. Maybe that helps yes. people. In, yeah. Yes. Because I, I've always been confused by the relatively 
lack of uptake on OCL and the relatively large uptake on, on, on SQL. Yeah. People that were more or less proficient in SQL were not so in OCL, and I was always bothered by that. Yeah. This, this indeed could be a, uh, a phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, it's a very condensed language, but there's also another difference between SQL and uh, OCL, and that is that, well, SQL really takes the godlike position, if you like, from the object-oriented point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, everything is available, everything is visible. And um, OCL takes an object-oriented point of view. You come from a certain object and you can see within the context of that object some stuff. And then you navigate through all of the data that you have. So that's also a very important difference, which people tend to find difficult. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So all in all, how would you describe the influence of OCL? Are you happy that you succeed in what you set out to do? Yeah, I'm happy with OCL, absolutely. It, um, it is taken up, uh, especially by the academic community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, not so much in uh, in IT practice, I think, uh, but maybe that's one step too many. But it does influence thinking about languages. Um, for instance, the in in Java five you have the um, the collections that are typed mm-hmm. by the element type. Yeah. Well, OCL had that. A long time before, yeah. And I really believe that the, the requests for those typed collections come from people who had a look at OCR and thought, "Well, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. We really, really like that, and yeah. we need that." Do you still see a future for o- OCL, or has the window closed? Um, I see a future in OCL. Uh, actually, as I've always done, not in the language itself. The language itself will probably um, die in 10, 20 years. As languages do. Yeah. As languages do. Yeah. But I see a large future in, in the concepts that we uh, introduced. Um, working with these collections is very easy in OCL, and you see that... Again, in Java 5, there's a much simpler way of expressing loops over collections, iterations over collections. Um, You also see that in C-sharp, by the way. And stuff like that, you know, bits and pieces from the ideas of OCL. If only the constraint aspect, the, the the, the, the notion that when you have a... Um, a database schema or a class diagram, then that you really need to have something else which restricts that diagram to valid instances is very important. And I see a a large future for that, yes. Yeah, okay, that's clear. Are there any areas nowadays where you think it should be applied, but isn't? Um, Not specific areas, but I would like it to be much and much more applied. It, if only for building simple, if not to say stupid, UML models. Yeah. Everyone who builds a UML model should also regard yeah. OCL yeah. as a useful tool. 
but tool support in especially in UML tools is, is, is lacking with regard to OCL, isn't it? Yes, I, I'm surprised about that yeah. because it's, it's really very simple to build an OCL parser and to give some tool support in these yeah. UML tools. Yes. If any idea why that yes. is, why, why tool vendors just don't seem to see the value that OCL could bring to UML modeling? No, I, I don't have any idea other than um, it's, it's not very demanded by the clients. Yeah. So it's, it's actually, there's no demand for it and there's no push for it. There's no pull and there's no push. Yeah. And so it's, it's only there in small parts of the IT world yeah. where people really see the use of it. Yeah. And of course, it has popped up in some reincarnation in the QVT standard by OMG as well. Yes, of course. So that's, uh, that has been an influence uh, as well, I guess. And in open architecture, where in the Czech language. Yeah, which is inspired by OCL, I guess. Yes. It, it's not OCL itself, isn't it? It is. It is? It is. Oh, I should be embarrassed not, not be knowing that. Um, yeah. There's some stuff I should be editing out. <laughs> <laughs> so in, 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 in hindsight, uh, would you have done something... Uh, some things different looking back no i would have created the same language yeah, yes that's clear absolutely um what I, no it's not completely true what i would like to add is more uh dynamic stuff to it mm -hmm. uh, and there you need only to have a few things like to be able to instantiate an object and um well, actually, if you are able to instantiate an object in an OCO expression, then you are already much, much more powerful. Mm -hmm. So stuff yeah. like that, yeah, I really should like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's close the subject on OCL and let's move to your uh, um, other historical contribution. Um, the, the first book on MDA I ever read was by uh, you and Jos Warmer and Bim Bast, I believe. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about UML and perhaps uh, MDA. Yeah, could you tell us a bit about your involvement with the whole MDA uh, thing? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. Um, well, as I said, I've been involved in object-oriented modeling for, for a long, long time. But object-oriented mo object modeling doesn't bring you an application. Yeah. You need to do something by hand. And I've seen so many programmers and uh, UML modelers uh, struggling to do that. That already in very early stages of my career, I thought, well, you should do this differently. Mm -hmm. You should really automate the transition from model to code. And with the MDA, this... Uh, possibility became a reality mm -hmm. and i've seen that before Al already in the early 90s i've seen that done but only for very small niche domains mm -hmm. yeah. and with the start of mda it appeared to be possible for not only these niche domains but for a very large uh, group of applications yeah. And that's why I became so actively involved in model-driven development. Were you actually involved with the whole OMG definition of MDA, or were you just writing the book? No, I was just writing the book. Yeah, but of course, through my context with the OMG, I did have uh, their information. 
Yeah. And some insights yeah. on how they looked at. But of course, I didn't always agree with them. I actually don't like the distinction of the PIM versus PSM yes. model. Yeah, that's my favorite pet yes. hate as well. So. Yeah. I mean, if you want to spend a numerous uh, uh, time-wasting discussions, let's let's discuss the whole independent and dependent stuff yeah. and that whole pattern. Yeah. But of course, everything is dependent upon something. Yes. So actually, the question is: is what is a platform? Yeah. And I don't think the OMG has clearly defined the notion of platform. Yeah. You also so. wrote you, you also wrote a book about uh, UML, I believe. Yeah, a Dutch one. Dutch one. So were you also involved in the UML definition by OMG? In the very first uh, stages, uh, UML was created first by uh, Grady Butch and uh, Jim Rumbo at, at Rational. Yeah. Ivan Jacobson, Jacobson didn't uh, join them, yeah. but later on. Um, so that was version 1.0 and actually version 1.1 was the first to be standardized. And I did some work on that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in the core team, but I had some influence, I hope. <laughs> At least my name is on it. So Yeah, that, that's a good thing in itself, I guess. So how would you characterize the, the, the impact of MDA being a person who has been involved with MDA from the fairly beginnings? The impact of MDA is that um, now not only a few people know that you can generate code from a model, but actually a large amount of people from yeah. the whole of IT industry is aware of that. And I don't see that a large amount of people are really doing it. Yeah, still not. Yeah. Not, no, not yet. But they are aware of its possibility and they are not as reluctant to experiment with it as they were 20 or uh, 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's the good thing, I think, about... Uh, it, that's a good thing about MDA. Yeah, so it raised yeah. the awareness of the whole concept and the whole ideas yes. you just mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. Yes, and I've always said, well, it's a matter of generations. You know, it takes 20 years before MDA really, really gets into the grain of the complete IT industry. But I think we are well on our track, yes. So that's a positive note? Absolutely. Okay, yes. super. Because uh, um, are there all, uh, also things that you think that should have ha been handled differently in the whole MDA creation? Um, yes, I, th I think the uh, expectations were too high too yes. early. Yeah. And that's actually what I mean by saying, well, it takes a generation before this technology really, really yeah. is ingrained in the whole of yeah. the IT industry. Yeah. Uh, that means that, well, you're talking about 20 years or so, mm -hmm. and you can't expect to have all of the advances of MDA within the first three or two years. Mm -hmm. You really have to wait these 20 years before you get all of the uh, good stuff yes. out of it. And you have to go to a whole cycle of tools uh, coming to the scene and maturing yes. to, a, to a level that people can actually use them. Yes, and exactly. That's, uh, that's, uh, yeah. So we are still halfway on the hype cycle, so to say, in your opinion. Yeah. 
or maybe not yet halfway. We have a few years to go yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a promising thought. Yeah. So, and this, the same goes, I guess, uh, the same line of questioning for UML2. I mean, you were involved with UML1. Mm -hmm. How did you like or experience the creation of UML2? Um, well, UML2, the uh, specification, or building the specification, I only experienced from the outside. Um, we were doing the OCL uh, standard at the time, mm -hmm. and we were actually waiting a uh, very long time before the UML specification uh, to be finished. And in fact, we already finished our OCL specification a long time before the UML specification was completed. So what I saw from the outside was a large number of discussions uh, which I thought weren't really useful and the result is a very, very large uh, specification yes. uh, which I find is not the best thing that could have happened to the world. Yeah. I should have preferred um, a much smaller, a much more concise uh, yeah. specification. Yeah, that, that is already answering my, 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 my next question. I mean, as a UML1 and MDA practitioner or even visionary, how would you characterize the, the, the quality of UML2? Is it useful enough? Well, that depends on, on which side you're on. From the point of view of a user, uh, UML hasn't changed much from mm -hmm. yeah. zero, uh, 1.0 to 2.0. It's a good thing, yeah. So you could say that's a good thing because it's backwards compatible. But you could also say, say that it's not a good thing but we, because we don't have enough new elements in the language. The language yeah. doesn't evolve much. Yeah. So I don't think that's a very positive effect, actually. I, I tend to be on the side, well, we don't have enough um, evolution in the language. From the other point of view, you can look at the specification and say, well, is this a good way to c express this language? Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't like the UML1 specification very much. It was too vague. Yeah. It was incomplete. It was inconsistent at some points. So it was really a good thing that they changed that. But the resulting standards, the UML2 standard, is as far as I'm concerned, too large and too complex mm -hmm. to, do s yeah. to do anything with. Now, if you only look at the levels of inheritance hierarchy, sometimes you have more than 20 levels and of, of subclasses. From my knowledge of object-oriented modeling, you shouldn't have more than three or four levels of subclasses in a good object-oriented model. Yeah, as a rule of thumb, yeah. As a rule of thumb, exactly. And that for me means, well, something's dodgy about this specification. Another example is the, the relatively large amount of different classes for things which are only barely different. If, if you look at actions, for instance, I believe there's 18 or 20 types of actions 
I don't see a large difference between these actions. Actually, it's, the difference is not large enough to really um, amount to so many different meta classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you should have modeled it differently. Yeah. But that's coming from my experience with object-oriented or modeling and the stuff we've learned from that. Yeah. So on these two items, from, from the user point of view, there's not enough evolution. From the specification point of view, the specification is too complex and it's too large. I'd say, well, if we really, really want a UML 3.0, we have to take a completely different direction. Yeah. Do we want a UML 3.0? Well, UML is a success. And it's a good thing to build upon that success. But only if we can evolve the language. Yeah. And at the moment, I don't see any uh, new developments in modeling languages that I think are worthwhile incorporating in the UML. Mm-hmm. But that also um, tickles me on the bit of domain-specific languages, yes. of yeah. course. Yeah. It's a perfect cliffhanger, is Yes, yeah. of course. And because domain-specific languages do not need to be general. UML, of course, needs to be general. It's a unified yeah. language. Yeah. And in a domain-specific language, you can incorporate much more uh, specific stuff, which is uh, useful for a special domain, but not in general. Yeah. So, so what is looming at the uh, at the horizon in terms of domain-specific languages and the technology in- involved in that? Well, looming on the horizon are uh, a large number of domain-specific languages, but all really small ones. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's a reason why we don't see them. They creep in, as it were, because there are already a large number of domain-specific languages. But they're small ones, they're used in one company or in a, in a, in a small domain. Uh, and they don't get worldwide attention like the UML. Yeah. So that is what is, it's, it is already over the horizon, it's, yeah, it's sure. coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually, yeah, we, we, we can actually see the horde coming. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Stampede. Yeah. yeah, it's like a stampede of small domain-specific languages. And, and the reason why we don't recognize them is because each of, one, each of them is so very small. It's a stampede of ants. Yeah, <laughs> stampede of ants, yeah. But of course, it, it, it's, it's kind of the, 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 the essence of the whole thing, that they are kind of small, that they are very yes. specific to a to a domain or even yes. a company's interpretation of a domain, right? Yes, right. So that uh, That's would, would, would that nullify the need for a universal um, modeling language or a unified modeling language, in your opinion? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, because I think there are commonalities in every industry, in, in every IT domain. And we need some way to express these as well. 
and uh, programming languages are of course a good means to do that but they are a bit too low level mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so i really think that uh, uml and domain specific languages can live next to each other okay really didn't think about that scenario but of course that 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 would mean that there would be a universal mechanism of actually communicating between language and language instances right the promise of MOF, for instance no it's actually a misconception that MOF or emf can help you there MOF and emf and any mathematical language is only capable of expressing the specification of a language but it's not capable of expressing how languages communicate with each other or actually I should be more precise with that because it's not how languages communicate. Languages do not communicate. It's the, the programs and the models, or as I call them, the mograms of a language that have re relationships with mograms in another language. And to be capable of having these relationships, you should build your domain-specific languages in a very specific way. And currently, there are no explicit things, explicit concepts in the meta, meta languages, in MOF and EMF, that is, uh, to express these interrelationships between MoGram. So, what do we, yeah, you talked about it a bit, but what concrete technology is there that can be a role in this field if MOF and EMF aren't? Um, that is something that we still need to invent. And of course, uh, there, there is some history on this issue as well, because already in the 70s and 80s, we were capable of, of linking in libraries in another mm -hmm. language mm -hmm. within programs in a specific language like C, for instance. And we can build on that. But nowadays, we need not only include libraries, but we need to really relate to programs or mograms in two languages. And we really need to have new technologies for that. In my upcoming book, I will explain some of the stuff that I've invented to do, to do this. Uh, but I'm sure that there are many other ways to do it. And many of these will prove to be more effective in the years to come. Okay. You mentioned the terms uh, uh, already a few times, MoGrams, uh, described in your upcoming book. Can you tell us a bit about the book and what it is all about and when it will be uh, released? Uh, the book is uh, at the publisher at the moment. It will be released in about four months. And it's uh, on, well, the title is Software Language Engineering. So it's really on what a software language is. Mm -hmm. And for me, a software language is any language that we use to create a software with. Uh, not natural languages, but any artificial language. So because they're artificial languages, really, we need to uh, explicitly specify them and explain them to people. And of course, any software language has an abstract syntax and a concrete syntax mm -hmm. and semantics, yep. like any language. And for a software language, these semantics could be either a code generator or a virtual machine, uh, so that you can run these mograms in this virtual environment. 
Um, and actually, my book is on that, how to explain, how to specify abstract syntax, because that's really the kernel stuff of a language. The abstract syntax is the yeah. most important thing. Um, how to express concrete syntax in various forms, you know, textual, graphical, or a combination of both. Um, how to express the semantics of a language. What is semantics, really? Because for many people, this is a very strange word, yeah. semantics. Yeah. And um, I also address, um, well, the early stages of how you, um, that of the technology of how you can communicate between MoGrams, how you can interrelate MoGrams. And actually, this interrelationship is something that you see all the time in programming languages mm -hmm. you know you have a uml model is just one large chunk it's one large piece of well it's not code it's a piece of model uh, but in in the coding world we we've left this type of, of um, things a very long time ago we've uh, noticed that it's much more simple and it's a much more practical way to do things in small bits and pieces which you interrelate with each other and we should do that on the modeling level as well we should have smaller bits which interrelate and the new thing here is that we could also interrelate things which are written in different languages yeah so really chucking up your problem in several chunks that operate with each other and all those chunks can be written in different languages yes. right yeah. yes and every language you choose because it's good a good language to express that type of problem in yeah so you could have a language which expresses the the screen flow for a web application yeah. and you could have a language which expresses uh, your database structure well we have several of these of course yeah but we should relate these two to yeah. each other yeah and in that view i also see uh, a place for the uml next to these large amounts of uh, domain specific languages we could also use uml but only for very specific elements of software development for instance um well i find that the class diagram of uml is very convenient to yeah. build um well domain schemas in yeah uh, but that's only part of an application yeah and there are several other bits of uml which are more or less useful it depends on on what you really want yeah. to express in your yeah. application what yeah. type of application yeah. you have so it really is picking out the good stuff the yes. stuff the stuff you need for your particular aspect of the overall problem yes that's the gist of it, right? Yes. So would that then enable our age-old dream for getting business people on board? Would this be an opportunity for, uh, for that age-old dream? Yeah. No, no. I believe I said this earlier, but I, th I don't think we will get business people to do the programming for us. Programming, building software is really a very specific task that you should be schooled for that. You should be educated in doing it. 
uh, but we should be able to bridge the gap between the ever-rising uh, demands of the business yeah. uh, and the application level. And as far as I'm concerned, currently I see that the demand side on the on the business side, um, the uh, the the rise of the complexity on the demand side is much larger than what we are capable of deliver, uh, delivering delivering on the IT side. Yeah, and that's actually what I see as a as a real problem. And is there anything in what we talked about in this in this interview that could help us in alleviating that problem? Well, I think domain-specific languages are the way to go. Yeah, currently there is no other solution for this problem than yeah. domain-specific languages. Bringing the language of the IT people much, much more closer to the language of the business people, yeah. and these two languages will be different because the business people will never have the formality that we really need yeah. in the IT. Yeah. But we should be able to bring the two languages much more closer together. Yeah. Just to bridge the gap that now nowadays yeah. exists. Yeah. Yeah. Make the gap as close as possible. So it's e the yeah. most easiest to jump over the gap. Right. But there will always be a gap. That's yeah. Because I find that gap is necessary. You have to have people that are really not formal and just brainstorming away and, and doing their stuff, the, the, the business that yeah. they're good at. And you have these more formal people that are really taking these ideas and building the applications based on them. Yeah. Well, on, on that note, having said that, uh, maybe we should conclude with... Uh, um you expressing your fears and hope for our noble trade for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. My hope for the trade is that uh, um, the developments will be um, quicker to reach the, the average IT developer. Um, currently, I see that there are many people out on the edge doing MDA, domain-specific languages, and much more interesting stuff that we have not discussed uh, during this interview. And what I find is that the knowledge of these people on the edge doesn't come through to the average IT person. Mm -hmm. And we should really be aware that what we know should also be uh, brought back to the people uh, to help them in their day-to-day -day business. Yeah. Is that the, the same gap that is between IT and business, like we talked about earlier? No, it's a different type of gap, because in this case, both sides have the same formality. Mm -hmm. yeah. Only the one uh, does it uh, in the, the, the traditional way, the way that person has been doing it yeah. 10 or 20 yeah. years yeah. Um, and for many IT people it's difficult to uh, keep up with all the new technology and that's why they they tend to be a bit conservative yeah. and they hate uh, all these new things even if they appear to be interesting and, and cost effective yeah. 
like MDA and DSLs. Yeah. Was this the hope or the fear you're expressing now? Well, the hope is that we will be able to get through to these average people. And the fear, of course, is linked to that because the fear is, well, no, we will not be able to uh, mm -hmm. yeah. get all of these good stuff really used by everyone in the IT business. Well, on that note, I think that's a fine moment to bring this interview to a conclusion. Uh, thank you very much for your time and thank attention you. and uh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for downloading and listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website. Or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net. Or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio as well as all other episodes are licensed under a Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.